Welcome to the Capital Link Shipping Master Series podcast. I am Nicholas Bornois, President of Capital Link. We have recently launched our podcast series as a means to educate a broader audience on topics of critical importance to the shipping industry. As such, our podcasts aim to be informational and educational. And every week, we host an exclusive interview with a C-level executive and major industry figures. This is our seventh episode. I would like to welcome our featured speaker today, uh, Amit Bekrota, who is the Director of U.S. Transportation and Shipping at Deutsche Bank. Today's podcast is on the topic of 2018 Outlook for Shipping. And with that, uh, I will start our discussion by welcoming Amit. Amit, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much, Nicholas. It's always a, a real big pleasure for me to be on with you. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, and thank you for your good words. We have a lot of uh, ground to cover, and I think we're going to provide, as always, uh, our uh, our audience, our listeners, with uh, with a lot of insight. Uh, I mean, you, you have great insight in the industry. So I'll start uh, by asking you, if we look at the various shipping sectors, dry bulk containers, tankers, gas, chemical, uh, if we look ahead, which sector are you most bullish on and why? Um, yeah, sure. So I think um, you know our philosophy when it comes to investing in shipping equities is really about sort of understanding where we are in the cycle from a supply-demand standpoint, and then more importantly, which companies or which um, which sectors uh, do companies actually have very good balance sheets? Because our focus on shipping investing is really uh, we want to capture upside, but we really are more focused on downside protection. And in that context, balance sheets are obviously critical and very important. And so kind of in that framework, in that context, um, given the fragmentation in the maritime shipping industry, um, you know, typically what happens is periods of severe weakness is followed by periods of strength, and periods of strength are followed by periods of weakness. And that's just the nature of fragmented, uh, you know, business cycles within fragmented industries. So in that context, when we look at you know all the different verticals within maritime shipping, uh, dry bulk certainly has gone through the mother of all down cycles, I would say, over the last couple of years. And the trough of the market, certainly in the first half, or the, really the first quarter of 2016. So as we fast forward now almost two years, um, the dry bulk market is, I would say, kind of in the third or fourth inning of a recovery, not just a rate recovery, but really more critically an asset value recovery. And so at the end of the day, my view is is that um, sh- you know dry bulk equity values um, are effectively de-risked given the amount of equity that had to be raised at the bottom of the cycle. And now the companies, given that they're de-risked, you can more focus on the upside as it relates to asset values and also rates where we think, um, you know, Cape size rates and, and Supermax rates and Panamax rates can actually start recovering from relatively low levels. And we've started to see that a little bit this year where companies like Starbulk, for example, are up 116% year-to-date off of a very low level. We think those types of gains can actually be sustained in 2018, and Starbulk is really one of our key uh, factors or key uh, key ways to invest in our view, a positive view on the dry bulk industry. So that's kind of the positive standpoint. On the negative side, um, we continue to see a little bit of, um, you know, we still – 
continue to have structural concerns around the container trade. We continue to have some cyclical concerns around the tanker trade, not necessarily structural, because ultimately we think the tanker uh, tanker trade will will start working maybe towards the middle of 2018 as uh, as the outlook to 19 improves. But structurally, we continue to have a little bit more of a bear issue on the container side, given the uh, plethora of new buildings that are coming hitting the water, especially on the large vessel side, which obviously has a disproportionate impact on capacity. So that's kind of where I would bookend, if you will, where I'm more positive and where I'm a little bit more concerned. If I can go for a moment back into the dry bulk side, uh, you, you see that the sector has sustainable uh, good fundamentals, uh, and that that's obviously would also drive the valuations. If I can ask you, is that demand-driven? Is that supply-driven? Is it a combination of both? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's certainly um, – it's, the answer is both. And so um, certainly this year, in, in my opinion, um, you know, we've seen actually decent dry bulk capacity growth um, this year. But really what's actually been somewhat encouraging – is demand growth, particularly when you look at iron ore imports into China and also coal imports into China. Coal imports into China, if you remember back in 2014 and 2015, really was the um, catalyst uh, for the dry bulk depression uh, from a demand standpoint, i.e. lower coal imports into China. And actually, as you now fast forward um, two and a half years, it's amazing. It's almost been three years since that since that happened. Time time sort of flies. Um, but essentially, uh, you know, the the domestic mining capacity of China has been curbed by the government. Uh, coal prices domestically in China have skyrocketed, and as a result, seaborne imports have increased. And that's been a nice uh, tailwind for the demand side of the equation. And that's also coupled with the fact that you know, there's lower ordering of vessels that has been much talked about by me, my peers, and other industry participants. And so while the actual capacity has, has grown of dry bulk in terms of, uh, you know, uh, in terms of actual capacity hitting the water this year, the psychology of the market, the psychology of owners has actually been pretty positive because orders have been relatively subdued. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard to understand, but <clears throat> psychology has a very, very important impact on rates in the market given the fragmentation of the industry. So I think to answer your question, I think it's a little bit of both, but frankly, the, the demand drive are probably more attributable to the, I mean, the, the strength in the market is more attributable to some of the demand drivers into China. If I can now migrate back to the uh, container side, uh, your main source of concern seems to be the order book, the delivery schedule. But a lot of these larger ships, uh, when they are delivered, are they not traditionally already leased out? Uh, are they not already under charter? Are we seeing a deviation now that we have speculative orders? No, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think the nature of container shipping is, um, you know, like a C-SPAN model where C-SPAN is an owner of owner of container container ships, but really uh, a major, uh, effectively a, a, a big leaser of container ships or a leasing company, effectively. And so, under long-term charters, the issue is, from my standpoint, is you know the uh, the health of the liner companies and their ability to, um, you know, um, 
earn enough rates on a daily basis to to essentially cover those cover those leases over time. And so, given the growth and supply of large container ships over the next several years, um, especially on the larger size TEU vessels, it's hard to envision a scenario um, where the supply dynamic is not, um, you know pushed out of balance, continue to be pushed out of balance. And so, um, you know, when you look at companies like C-SPAN, for example, um, you know, a lot of their a lot of their vessels are on long-term charter, but they've also had to cut their dividend pretty significantly because ultimately those charters come off charter and that you have to, you know, recharter them. And if you recharter them in a weak market, that translates to lower cash flows, even for ownerships, uh, owner, you know, container ship owners that are that lease their vessels out under long-term charters. So there are some, you know, rechartering risk associated with long-term contracts as well, and you have to sort of, you know, take a more structural perspective. And we're not at the point yet to have a, a you know, a bullish view or a positive view where we can actually see the light of, at, at the end of the tunnel. There's still a tremendous amount of large container ships that are going to be hitting the water over the next several years, and in our view, that's going to to still, you know, um, throw off the supply-demand balance. The feeder side, though, seems to be doing uh, better, and I think seems to have a better order book. And uh... yeah, that's true. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I guess um, in some ways, um, you know, it, it it's positive that it's uh, improving off of a, of a low level. <laughs> so, so, so the nice thing about fragmented industries is. You can never have a, a bad market for too long because you always have a supply response. And you, unfortunately, you never really have a good market for too long because you always have a supply response. And so certainly, to your point, we are seeing some recovery in certain segments of the market. But still, I would characterize the overall container ship industry as, uh, I think, structurally challenged over the next year or two, just given the level of tonnage on a TEU basis uh, that's hitting the water over the next couple of years. You know, you're very right. I think markets go through changes, through structural changes, uh, ups and downs. And uh, from speaking to a number of people I hear that they compare where the container industry is today with where the dry bulk industry was a couple of years ago in terms of perception that um, today, you know, the container side seems to be less uh, favored and a number of people are spotting it as a potential or the, as a next opportunity. Who knows? Well, well, um, I, yes, I, I agree with you generally. I mean, I think in fragmented industries, you're exactly right. Um, but just to put it on a scale of one to ten, ten being a depression, and ten, you know, one being a depression and ten being exuberance. Uh, the dry bulk industry in early 16 was a one. <laughs> it was a one, okay? The container ship industry is nowhere close to being a one today. So, uh, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, and I, I tend to agree that, you know, out of the depths of a depression comes the, you know, seeds of recovery, so to speak. And I think that's somewhat true, but uh, I think the, 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 um, the dry bulk industry was just in a completely different world, and rightfully so, given you know between 2008 and 2012, dry bulk capacity uh, on the water increased by 66 percent. Okay, yeah. I mean you had a more than you know 50 percent increase in capacity over a four-year period, so that kind of made sense when demand dropped off. But nonetheless, I think your general point I tend to agree with in terms of the moment that people start get you know being negative on a market. 
that's actually the moment that you kind of want to buy the stocks or buy um, – as long as you have a good understanding of the balance sheet and the capital structure of the company, typically, ironically, the um, the best time to invest in shipping is when actually liquidity and capital is least available. And I think that's kind of the, the lesson that I think people have learned or taken away over the last five years. Actually, digressing for a moment, it's very interesting that, uh, you know, when you are a, a ship owner, that is the time that you, you know, go in to buy when asset values are low and uh, everybody seems to be pessimistic on the sector because things ultimately come back. But it's very interesting that uh, obviously investors who are looking at shipping stocks you know, they, they, they tend to shy away from those sectors that are the most depressed, uh, maybe waiting for momentum or a turnaround and, and buy later. Yeah, and if you look at the um, the history of capital, equity capital market transactions in the U.S. and shipping more recently, I mean, if you go back to 2013, I mean, it was just an unbelievable environment. I mean, you it's a 180-degree difference from where you are today, where you had companies raising hundreds of millions of dollars, upwards of a billion dollars for um, companies that basically had zero ships because it was, um, you know, an entirely uh, a capital race to fund new buildings at very high valuations. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, I mean, at the end of the day for ship owners, other people's money becomes available at kind of the worst time for an investment because that typically tends to be the time when there's a little bit of euphoria in the marketplace and uh, you know unsophisticated investors want to partake in that and I think that creates a little bit of an issue so like I said before the best time to actually invest in shipping whether it's hard assets or equities is actually when everybody else doesn't want to invest in it because it's such a fragmented industry that capital is typically available at the worst at the worst time. So we talked about uh, dry bulk. We talked about containers. Uh, if I can move, uh, if I can move on, what about uh, the tanker sector, either on the product side or the crude side? Yeah, sure. So um, you know, generally speaking, we are actually, and maybe counterintuitively, positive on the crude tanker and product tanker market. Um, part of the reason we're positive on it is because the fundamentals aren't fantastic today. And again, it goes back to what we said, is that when you make, you make money in shipping over time by being somewhat of a contrarian and being a little bit earlier. And so um, if you buy a tanker company today, of course there are exceptions and you have to focus on capital structure and balance sheet. But generally, if you're buying a tanker company today, what you're buying is um, an asset, uh, an equity or stock, if you will, that is discounting very low asset values relative to both history and what is likely going to be the case over the next couple of years. And so we like the dynamics of buying an equity that uh, essentially has leverage to increasing asset values. That was the trade this year that we made on the dry bulk industry. So, for example, on, just, on January 2nd of this year, the first trading day of the year, we upgraded the dry bulk industry and upgraded Starbulk, largely predicated on a reflation cycle in asset values. And fast forward 12 months, Starbulk is now up 116% year to date. And so we think that the tanker cycle, there's a similar trade to be made uh, as you look out over the next year to two where asset values conti will continue to reflate, and that will have a very powerful and tremendous impact on the equity values almost across the board for the tanker industry. And you have that thesis for both the product side and the crude side? 
Yeah, I, I do, actually. I mean, you could argue that the product side is somewhat better positioned given the order book in that specific segment of the market is actually um, at near historical lows, particularly also for the MR segment. Um, you know, I, I look at the, the product market's a little bit more difficult to forecast from an, from an analyst standpoint, especially on the demand side, given the plethora of routes and the, the, the arbitrage uh, trading that goes on on the demand side. So it's a little bit harder to predict on the demand side. But certainly the supply outlook for the product tanker market is more favorable. And ultimately, the, the, the order book outlook for the crew tanker market will become favorable because um, the weak market will disincentivize ordering. So um, I like buying stocks and, and, and verticals within shipping when they're out of favor. And I would say the tanker industry is out of favor today. Um, and, and I'm buying it because a year from now, I think they'll start to get in favor in a pretty significant way. What about uh, the LNG or the LPG, the gas sector? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we are generally positive on LNG, just like I think a lot of different people are. We do see some pretty strong secular growth opportunities in um, in LNG in terms of liquefaction capacity that is coming up in Australia and also the U.S. And we think that will be enough to absorb the incremental supply coming on board. So I think structurally LNG, LPG, are tremendous growth opportunities over time, and a lot of that uh, capacity, liquefaction capacity on the LNG side will be enough in our view to absorb that incremental supply growth. So uh, I think longer term we're positive. Again, um, you know, I would just, you know, caution people on this call. Um, it's important when you're positive on a specific vertical, it's important to really understand on a company-by-company -company basis balance sheets and capital structures because not all companies are created equal. And so it's a little bit out of the scope of this call, but generally speaking, the tanker, LNG, LPG sectors, I think, are well-positioned over time, and you want to pick companies that have very strong balance sheets that are going to allow them to take advantage of a weak market. Actually, you're, you're repeating uh, what I think is a critical point here, that on one hand, we have to see sector fundamentals, but then we have to couple them with uh, exactly capital structure and, and balance sheets. And I think the combination of the two is what ultimately might drive the, uh, the stock market performance. Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, I think shipping, shipping companies and owners have a very good sense of this, right? I mean, I think that investors in shipping, as I, you know, my job as head of shipping equity research at Deutsche Bank is talking to institutional investors about the risks and rewards of investing in shipping stocks. And that's what I do every day. And one thing that I've noticed is when investors want to buy shipping stocks, they want to buy it for the upside. Whereas I think really what you should do, investors should really focus on the downside associated with shipping investing. And that's when a really sound and good understanding, a deep understanding of how balance sheets work, the relationship between the asset value and the impact that it has to the balance sheet. Um, I'll give you an example, just hypothetically. You know, there are companies out there in, in the shipping world that talk about their leverage relative to book equity or book capital. Well, let me tell you something. That is the most irrelevant statistic when it comes to investing in shipping stocks. And so there is some misinformation that's being fed out there that needs to be corrected. And so that's where I come in and my team comes in. At the end of the day, when you look at shipping stocks, 
a keen understanding of the balance sheet is very, very important to understanding the downside risks. And I think that's somewhat of a differentiating factor for our research and the, and the focus that we put on it. Thank you, uh, Amit. Last question on the shipping market. Anything to say about the chemical sector? You know, it's um, the chemical sector is a relatively small space in the public sphere. Um, so it's, a very it's not niche sector. You're right. It's a it's a very niche sector. So you know, I for me, um, you have to look at it on a case by case basis. Um, it's not a sector that we in our research franchise have overly focused on because there's just not a lot of public companies out there that are pure plays on the chemical sector. Certainly, there are some private ones that are interesting, and Ardmore Shipping has a few chemical tankers, for example. Um, and so we do it, we do come across it, but we don't necessarily we don't necessarily have a very robust view on, on the, the supply demand dynamics on chemicals because we just it doesn't come across our desk very often. So now moving away, and thank you for the uh, very insightful uh, review and the outlook of, of the various shipping sectors. Let's move away from that. Uh, there are significant changes taking place uh, across the space that I think can have a transformational impact on, on shipping. For example, you know, we had a podcast the other day with Bill Guo of um, ICBC Leasing, and one of the themes that we discussed was uh, how Chinese leasing firms are teaming with cargo providers to finance fleets that will carry their products, and mainly on the dry bulk side. Then we see the U.S. Uh, becoming energy sufficient and actually being an exporter of crude oil and LNG. And then we have all these new alliances on the container side. So wherever you look in the industry, you see a lot of change going on. What do you think will be the effect of these uh, new trends uh, in, in the market? Well, I mean, I think the the constant is change, to your point, right? I mean, the the only certainty is that things will change. And I think on the financing side, um, you have to look at it. I think generally, um, you know, any pools of money that are that are there to finance new building orders are probably – not wonderful for the long-term outlook for the company, right? So for, for, for the industry, sorry. So the industry has a supply problem, an but oversupply. Here, but here I'm referring primarily to the idea of the cargo uh, owners right. uh, integrating forward with their own fleets. Yeah, I think that's I think that's generally positive in terms of de-risking, um, you know, the the market for shipping. I mean, I think what you're referring to, maybe if I'm not correct, if I'm not misunderstanding you, is sort of VLOCs. Um, that 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 are you know you know being financed by Chinese companies to take uh, iron ore cargoes from Brazil yeah. into China. Yeah. So so that is fine and good, but that's not necessarily a very good outlook for the the current cave size market. For example, um, you know one one example the analysis we've done is that you know the incremental ordering of VLOCs uh, can account for basically 20% of the Brazil to China iron ore route. Um, and we've we've talked about that in some of the research that we've put out. So what does that do to disintermediate the Cape size fleet is a little bit of a concern that we have. And now that you can actually, um, you know, call on Chinese ports with VLOCs, whereas before what used to happen prior to a couple of years ago, uh, they used to have transshipment points in Malaysia, for example, where you used to unload the VLOCs into Cape sizes and then those Cape sizes would call on Chinese ports. Well, now you can, dis you, you, you don't need those transshipment points anymore. Uh, you can directly call on on, 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 on Chinese uh, ports. So I think that there is some risk that the cave size you know, fleet gets disintermediated as a result. So there are 
pluses and minuses, I think that uh, we have to look at, and which is why you've seen some very large dry bulk companies out there, some of the biggest in the world, actually sell all their capesized vessels. So uh, I'm not calling for structurally lower capesized rates by any means. I actually think it's the one place for volatility in the market, and I expect actually capesized rates to be up over the next couple of years. But there's some nuanced points in terms of what impact that could have on the current installed base if if essentially some certain routes for certain cargoes become captive on some of those uh, you know sale lease back you know transactions actually right i think um, most uh, industry participants expect the cape size trade to be quite robust for the next couple of years well, we certainly believe so. Um, I mean, if you look at our, <laughs> if you look at our, uh, you know, um, forecasts, we're expecting double-digit increases in Cape size rates on average over the next couple of years. And, and interestingly, you know, one investor emailed me this morning uh, saying that our estimate was probably too conservative. <laughs> so, so I think, I think, um, you know, I'd rather be wrong on the on the on the upside than wrong on the downside. And so, given the environment that we've taken over the last couple years, I'm certainly cautiously optimistic, but I'm moving more into the optimistic camp and a little bit out of the cautiously optimistic camp. What about the U.S. being an energy exporter? You know, um, I think that's actually a really good thing longer term for the crude tanker market. So when you look at back in 2014, 2015, when the U.S. was you know, producing more, you know, more oil domestically, we we're actually importing a lot less oil from West Africa. And a lot of that West African oil, you know, made its way to China, which basically uh, had a pretty significant ton mile effect on the crude tanker trade. So I think to the extent that you get, um, you know, U.S. production up again, and now that the export ban has been lifted a little while ago, uh, some of those cargoes going to Europe, some of those cargoes going to Asia, and then also having a reduction in West West African cargo imports could create like this double benefit of ton mile where you're getting ton mile growth from U.S. to Asia. You're also getting ton mile growth from West Africa to Asia like you did back in 2014. So I think generally it's kind of a it's, it's a, definitely a long term positive development. And as long as the crude tanker market can, um, you know, you know, stop ordering new vessels uh, and keep the supply growth in check, I think that could have a very positive impact over time. So moving forward, uh, if we look ahead, um, you know, besides the various new trends that we see in the shipping markets, there are also several regulatory changes that could have significant impact on the industry. And I'm referring specifically to the balanced water treatment and to sulfur emissions. Mm-hmm. How do you see this impacting the industry? We have seen a flurry of activity from a number of companies, uh, you know, getting ready to comply with these new regulations. What do you think will be the impact on the industry? You know, the the ballast water um, treat, you know, convention regulation. I n- I never thought that that was a significant was going to be a significant driver for the industry or significant inflection either way. Um, and one of the reasons, there are a couple of reasons. One is, is that, um, you know, there, there was some, uh, some loopholes, i.e. if you, you know, uh, did a 
preemptive dry dock ahead of the uh, mandate, you could essentially defer that regulation for five years. And a lot of companies, at least public companies, did take advantage of that. And and so in some ways, they're off the hook for about five more years. Um, And then the other thing is that the incremental cost is not as significant relative to, um, you know, being a good market, i.e., if if it costs you know several hundred thousand dollars you know a thousand dollar a day increase in the in the rates that they can earn is a pretty significant you know quick payback on that incremental investment so i i never felt like the ballast water uh regulation was going to be a big game changer however i do feel the sulfur cap in 2020 is an unbelievable has the potential at least to be an unbelievable game changer for the industry and I wrote a note recently, actually with that title, a potential game changer for the shipping industry. And and it really was uh, the context of that um, note was that the capacity to actually produce scrubbers is actually much lower than what people think. Uh, we estimate that there's about only capacity globally to produce 12 to 1300 scrubbers um, in the world every year uh, against, um, you know, call it tens of thousands of actual vessels that may need scrubbers um, given the sulfur cap. And so um, companies that aren't able to have scrubbers uh, really are going to be in a situation where they're going to have to, you know, uh, pay a lot more to burn um, cleaner fuel or, um, and, 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 you know, that's a cost that's going to be ultimately, um, you know, burden the shipper. And so from my standpoint, I think companies that take preemptive action and invest significant amounts of money to actually install scrubbers on their fleet are going to be in a very good position uh, when the mandate goes into effect to really create a pretty a, a pretty significant uh, tier two market uh, of, of 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 vessels that have scrubbers and vessels that don't. But I think that could be a pretty big game changer for the industry in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. Now. Moving on, uh, shipping has been uh, a fragmented industry. More sectors are more fragmented than other sectors. But in general, I think if you look at the industry, as you said yourself, it's a fragmented uh, industry. We have seen, uh, I think, more and more consolidation uh, coming on board, uh, not only from the commercial side with the various commercial pools, but also on the ownership side. Do you expect this to continue actually is that kind of a necessity uh, moving forward? Do shipping companies le- need larger scale and a more corporate structure to compete in today's reality? You know, I, I don't know if that's the case. So, so first of all, maybe I have a little bit of a different view here, but I think the word consolidation is misused in shipping. I, I don't think the, the, the um, you know, the dry bulk industry, for example, is consolidated, and, and nor do I think it ever will be. Um, I think the tanker industry is a little bit more consolidated, but it's still unbelievably fragmented. Um, and so, like, the container ship industry is doing things like alliances that maybe make it more consolidated, but at the end of the day, there's still it doesn't change the number of ships that are on the water. And so um, I think that's that's the negative impact over time. So the, and the, the fundamental reason, um, Nicholas, is basically that you know there's there's some you know dissynergies from getting too big. What I mean by that is is that you know um, a ship a, a ship a vessel is kind of a, a mini economy in of its own. And, um, 
you know, you can have some synergies on the back end and back office and things like that by getting from 10 shifts to 20 shifts to 30 shifts to 40 shifts. But when you get from 40 shifts to 100 shifts or 100 shifts to 150 shifts, it's not clear to me that you get a a much incremental benefit or operating leverage on on the cost. Uh, lever, you can leverage your cost base that much more significantly. And so I think that what 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 ends up happening is just you just end up having a lot more operating leverage to the market. And so um, that could actually hurt you during downturns when you just have more of the same asset heading into a downturn. You lose even that much more value. So I think there's a sweet spot, and you can see that in the public companies today, there's a sweet spot of getting into the maybe 50 to 100 ship level, but there's not a significant incentive to get much above that in size, given some of the, um, you know, the operating leverage characteristics of the business model. That's it. So now let's, uh, let's move on again uh, and go to another uh, type of questions. Let's talk about investor interest in shipping stocks. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> so will we see, I mean, do we see new investors coming in? Uh, also, we have seen that individual investors have become uh, a much more significant shareholder class in many of the shipping stocks. So what are, what are investors looking for? I mean, this is what you're dealing with uh, uh, day in, day out. Are investors looking for value, for growth, for yield? Or is it ultimately a momentum play? You know, um, I think I think it's it's an interesting question because um, you know certainly shipping does have an ability or propensity to become momentum a momentum play. Um, but I think I think we're getting a little bit more discipline in the investor institutional investor community. Uh, whereas you know I was talking about before where um, you know investors would look at shipping stocks and just focus on the upside, I think more and more, in, at least the, the institutional investors I talk to, are actually more focused now in understanding the business model in a more fundamental way uh, within the context of trying to understand where the risks are. And I think that is a fundamentally different conversation um, that investors are having with with analysts like myself and also CEOs and CFOs. And so if, if you're a CEO and CFO or a ship owner, um, you have to um, fundamentally change uh, your your business model as in terms of how you approach financing and capital structure. And so today, um, if investors are more focused on downside risk, that just means that you cannot have uh, you have to have more equity on the balance sheet, and you have to have more skin in the game, so to speak. And so that's why you're seeing throughout the industry loan-to-value ratios that are coming down quite significantly to almost you know unheard of levels prior to the the downturn in the dry bulk market, and that that is having a contagion effect across the industry. So my feeling is. Uh, I always tell ship owners when I talk to them, uh, when you meet investors, you don't have to sell them on the upside. You know, ship owners love to talk about how every $1,000 change in rates will translate to, you know, 50% increase of EBITDA or something like that. I think that is understood, but ship owners now have to answer the question, I believe, you know, have, you have to answer the question, what if they're wrong in their outlook for the market? And that is a fundamental change, I think, um, in in, conver- in the shipping equity markets and shipping investing generally, whereas investors are now focused on 
what could go wrong. And I think ship owners have to adapt to that. And I think some of them are adapting very well. In fact, a lot of public ship owners are adapting very well by uh, putting more equity on their balance sheets, reducing their leverage, uh, having a more balanced charter- chartering strategy. So I think they're doing all the right things. But there is a fundamentally different conversation that's happening between um, ship owners and investors. And I think that's going to be a healthy thing for the industry over time. So you're covering not just shipping, you're covering transportation. And uh, if I look at uh, shipping stocks, are they fairly valued compared to the other transportation stocks of the broader market? You know, it's um, it's not a totally fair comparison because um, the shipping, uh, the maritime shipping industry is the most fragmented industry in the world. And when you have a very fragmented industry, uh, cash flows, for example, don't last very long on either side. They don't stay bad, too bad for very long, and they don't stay very good for, for very long. So um, one of the frustrations that ship owners have in an upcycle is they don't feel their EBITDA or cash flow or earnings are valued as appropriately uh, by the market. But there's a very good reason for that. Those cash flows don't last very long. <laughs> so, so, so there's a very different. Um, effectively, shipping companies are valued on a book value basis, not in terms of the balance sheet book value, but the book value, uh, the market value of their assets, so the net asset value. And that is a very different valuation uh, approach than really any other company, whether it's transportation companies or any other company in the industrial complex. And so I think that shipping is a very special industry. It's a wonderful industry. I love I love the shipping industry, and I like to think that I'm a part of the shipping industry. Um, and, and, uh, and as a result, it's a very unique industry that, that really can't um, – you know, uh, be compared really to any other industry for better or for worse because of the unique nature and the fragmentation of the industry. Well, I mean, you are the analyst, you are the expert, but as a relative outsider, I'd like to make the point, the whole transportation sector by definition is a cyclical sector. So indeed, the cash flows, you know, may not last very long, but they they come and go, but but they're there. And um, I think... uh, the tendency to value everybody at book value or NAV, I, I think that's my personal view that it's kind of a disservice to the industry because we have all these companies that build a lot of value in their industry footprint, relationships, buying power, operational excellence, and so on. And then if the only thing we take into consideration is the NAV or the book value, I think it detracts from the industrial nature of uh, the service they perform. I don't know if you agree with me. <laughs> well, I, I agree and I disagree. Uh, so I, 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 let me start by where I disagree. <laughs> I, the net asset value is a good, um, a good gauge for a lot of different things. It's not just about the value of the asset, the gross value of the asset. That, that is out of their control, and hopefully that continues to go up, and, 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 and that's great. It also is a gauge of capital allocation, i.e., um, you, have to, you have to back out of that gross asset value the, uh, the, 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 net, the, the gross debt of the company, you have to add the cash of the company, and then you, you have to take out any potential new buildings, and then you have to take that value and divide it by the number of shares outstanding. And so what that does is, is that 
it um, that that gauge that net asset value captures not only the gross value of the assets but also the financing of how you paid for those assets and then also um, you know in terms of equity financing takes into account the number of shares that are outstanding relative to that gross asset value so I I feel like it's a good gauge of how management teams have allocated capital and when you think about buying a stock you know good companies aren't necessarily good stocks and bad companies can be good stocks and so you have to you have to look at those um those th- those factors through different lenses and so my view on 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 shipping equities is is that certainly you have to look at the technical knowledge and the industrial you know what these guys do on a daily basis which is move 95% of the world's goods every day so they do a very significant thing I think that net asset value over time is a good gauge of capital allocation. And when you buy a stock, Nicholas, what you're really doing is giving the management team an endorsement that they are allocating capital in a reasonable and, and prudent way. And I think net asset value captures that uh, you know, in, in a pretty good way, in a good snapshot. And that's kind of the way I would think about it. But to me, NAV, net asset value, is almost like the breakup value. And um, if you break up a company, yes, of course, you, you realize the value of the assets. But at the same time, let's say if you go to buy a company, then you have to have a premium because that company may have big relationships, a big industry footprint, and so on. And I think that somehow many times we don't take that uh, goodwill, if you want. Actually, it's not, it's not just goodwill. We don't take into consideration the tangible footprint these companies have built. But any, anyway, that's a different No, but thing. you know, th- this is an important discussion because I think, um, you know, I agree with you in many ways. And, you know, we can have a very wonderful, spirited debate uh, on net asset value. And I have had many in my career. Okay, um, and, I, and I think it's a healthy debate because I don't think anybody's wrong. It's just a different way of approaching the industry and looking at the stocks. But I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think it's a very healthy debate that, that as an industry should have more and more and more. So continue on the capital market side. We haven't seen any new IPOs this year. Actually, if I, I stand to be corrected, we have seen a few OTC listings in Norway. And as we know, these OTC listings are the first step towards a full listing, most likely in the U.S. market. So capital markets have been selectively open for shipping in, for both equity uh, follow-on offerings and also uh, for debt. Uh, there has been a lot of debt issued this year. So do you believe that capital markets are receptive to shipping? Do we need to see more IPOs? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I think uh, I've been on panels in the past. I think last year uh, someone asked me, you know, when when do you think the equity capital markets are going to be open for shipping again in the U.S.? And I kind of threw out a number like early 2019. And people thought that was, you know, pretty far out. And maybe I, I caveated and said maybe late 18 even. So I think, I think you know, 2018, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, the shipping market, the dry bulk shipping market was in the depths of a depression. Okay. That was um, not that long ago. It was, uh, you know, roughly two years ago or a little less than two years ago. And so um, as we digest that and get further and further away from it, I think um, and balance sheets have certainly rationalized and, and, and are much better positioned now. 
um, there will be a case to be made in investing in shipping in a responsible and prudent way. And unfortunately, back in 2013, investing in shipping was not being done in a responsible and prudent way. And so I think the industry has changed a little bit. Uh, actually, the industry has changed a lot. Uh, and I think the investor interest will, will definitely be there. I think um, 2018 will be a uh, probably a, an inflection year for the industry from a capital market standpoint. I think it will probably be a second half event as opposed to a first half event. And then as long as, you know, um, equity values give these companies full credit for the value that they create, then I think that the market will be, you know, ship owners will also be more receptive to bring their uh, ventures to the marketplace uh, for, for a public offering. So I'm actually very optimistic that we are through a very difficult time for the industry. And 2018 will really be the first year where we'll have, you know, a year before that of a good of a good market, right? Which is what the dry bulk market was in 2017 was a pretty good market. And so I think that 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 has a big impact on the psychology of both ship owners and investors. And I hope uh, that that will translate into um, a better time for the industry, which I think it will. I'm glad to hear that. So when we look at uh, the listed shipping stocks, we see that there is a range of a few larger capitalization companies and, and several medium, smaller ones. How do you see the capital market potential, especially for the mid or small size companies? Um, you know, they're, they're big, bigger companies undoubtedly have a benefit in the capital markets, whether that's the equity capital markets or the debt capital markets. They also have a much better uh, uh, potential in attracting larger institutional investors. Um, so I think that, um, you know, there is a significant advantage in being larger, and people like to throw out that billion-dollar market cap as kind of the magic number. I don't think it needs to be a billion. I think it could be lower than that or higher than that, obviously, but that seems to be kind of the psychological threshold that people have in their minds. I think the outlook for the the, the, the smaller companies, um, you know, they have to um, do it somewhat more organically, i.e., um, the market has to be very cooperative. Uh, the earnings uh, and, 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 and values of the assets and the, earn and the productivity of those assets need to be inflecting quite strongly. And I think hopefully, given the operating leverage in the business, in a good market, small shipping companies can suddenly become pretty big shipping companies. <laughs> and, then, and I think that's, that's the opportunity that, that, that hopefully they can capitalize on. So last question to, you know, it's been a long interview, but I, I thought um, we had a great discussion, so I didn't want to cut it short. Um, it's great to have you on board and be able really to have this kind of uh, insight and, and detail. So last question, Sh uh, shipping is a capital-intensive industry, and uh, it has traditionally relied on bank financing. But things are now changing. Uh, commercial banks are under a lot of pressure from all kinds of, uh, of, of sides, uh, regulatory and so on, regarding their shipping portfolios. And the end result is that bank financing is less available and in general more expensive. At the same time, as we discussed, uh, capital markets have been open, but selectively, and the majority of shipping uh, companies remain private. We have seen a number of uh, uh, credit funds jumping in, but I don't know if uh, they are enough to, uh, you know, to be able to plug the, uh, the funding gap. So where do you think capital will come from? Because at the end of the day, shipping is always in need of capital. And then how can companies attract it? Yeah, so I think I think it's I think the availability of capital is cyclical, okay? And so um we have had a very difficult period um in in sh in the shipping markets and so it's not that 
shocking that capital is not as available or readily available as it once was. Uh, now that you're right, there are some structural factors with respect to banks, um, um, you know, exiting the market and things like that. So that's certainly, and the, but I think, ironically, I think that's probably a good thing for the industry over time as uh, the barriers to entry increase with respect to financing. And so if any, um, you know, if, if small ship owners have restrictive availability of financing, that's generally a good thing in, in terms of their ability to uh, place new building orders, for example. So I think that's actually a very positive long-term trend. And what's going to happen is financing availability is only going to be, uh, financing is only going to be available for the largest and strongest players. Um, and, and, and that generally is, is a good thing for the industry's health. Um, in terms of when I think, you know, I think equity capital is, is a big driver of this. Um, you know, like we talked about, I think equity capital markets are going to start to, you know, open up for, for the shipping industry, I would imagine, uh, in 2018, towards the later 2018. And that hopefully will drive some confidence, increase confidence in the industry, and suddenly, you know, financing will be, become more available. My only hope is, is that that financing is used for secondhand purchases as opposed to new building orders, because if, that, if that's not the case, we're just planting the seeds for another down cycle down the road. And so I think a, a very prudent approach and a very careful approach, an approach that doesn't forget the, what, what the industry has been through over the last three years is going to be critical in making sure that you know some of the financings that are becoming available over the next year or two are going to be used in a responsible way. Very good point. Now we have come to the to the end of our discussion. One of the things that we are trying to to promote also with these podcasts, uh, Amit, is uh, as you pointed out uh, during our discussion, shipping carries 90 to 95 percent of the of the global trade. I don't know if people are aware of the fact that exactly almost all of the global trade moves on ships one way or the other. So we're trying exactly to to promote the image of shipping not as a volatile standalone business, but as part of an industrial chain. Uh, <clears throat> at the end of the day, shipping is part of a, of a logistic chain, and it performs a vital function for the economy, for the industry, for, for every individual consumer. So we're trying to promote exactly the, uh, the image of shipping as part of uh, a long-standing industry that will always be there. It has its ups and downs, of course, as you pointed out, and um, I hope you agree with this point of view. Oh yeah, I, I have no idea. I, I, I mean, the the shipping well, the shipping industry has a five thousand year history, and I undoubtedly, without without a an ounce of doubt in my mind, uh, feel like it's going to have another five thousand year history ahead of us. Um, you know, like I said, there was a quote that I thought was interesting. It said uh, God must have been a ship owner because he placed uh, you know raw materials far away from areas of consumption and filled the middle with water. And I think that that is a perfect summation of the importance that shipping has on the on the global economy. I have not heard that before, but I will adopt it, and thank you for bringing it up. So I, we have reached now the end of our discussion. I'd like to thank you very much. It's been a very long one, uh, but I hope that uh, our listeners will find it very interesting. Before we conclude, uh, I'd like to thank Amit for being with us. Uh, I'd like to point out that this uh, podcast uh, is not meant to be an investment advice type of uh, podcast, but more informational, so everybody can have a better understanding of the industry. 
And I'd like to say that this is the last podcast of 2017, so we wish everybody happy holidays and uh, a great new year. And we'll be back again next year. And Amit, thank you very much for uh, being with us today. Well, thanks so much. Have a great uh, holiday and happy new year as well. Bye-bye. Thank you.